Ayute Molusimele Stone, Lucupicron, Amacanon, Borpiton. Welcome to Sweet Bitter, a podcast where we investigate the truth and controversy surrounding Sappho, her life, the Isle of Lesbos, and her relevance today. We're your hosts, Ellie Brigida and Lisa Charlotte. In our final episode, we're going to be talking about the future of Sappho and the classics as a whole. As we do each episode, we're going to start with one of Sappho's fragments chosen by our resident poet, Elise. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear our own version of the poem as a song. Elise, hello. Hi, y'all. I'm so excited for this fragment and also like sort of depressed. (laughs) I'm sad this is our last episode. I know. I can't believe it's here. It's just goodbye for now. Yes, I mean, we'll be back. (laughs) We will be back. (laughs) But let's talk about the fragment. I feel like it's the perfect fragment for the last episode. So what fragment have we chosen, Elise? It really is perfect. It's fragment 147. And I'm actually going to let Chris Mason, who you've heard on previous episodes, he's one of the members of the band Old Songs. He's going to read it for you in Greek and then in English and then talk about it a little bit. So here you go. Deduca men a selana, kai heliades, beside nuctes para derget ora, ego de mona catudo. Someone I say will remember us in another time. So, I mean, she's looking forward to us, just like we're looking back at her. We want all of you future listeners to know that we are looking forward to you 2,500 years in the future when I'm sure you're listening to this very artistically important podcast. <laughs> I just love it. Make It really makes me teary-eyed. It is such a gorgeous fragment. Honestly. Like someone I say will remember us in another time. Like just that sentence has so much beauty and so much weight. It's it's one of my favorite. Fra- I think it's a lot of people's favorite fragment. So there is actually a fragment 147 project that is putting together the fragment 147 in a short film with queer women from all over the world who are reading that poem in their native languages. So definitely something to look out for and we'll share it on our social media when it comes out. I'm super excited to hear it. It's very cool. Elise, why did you pick this fragment for this particular episode? I mean, I really like this idea that Sappho is thinking about her future reception, not just herself, but it's someone I say will remember us. So her whole community of women who she was hanging out with, writing these poems about, we remember her, we remember Gongola, we, we remember Atis, we remember all these people because she Don't wrote these Anna songs. Sorry. I was Sorry, about to Anna say, Victoria. I was yeah. watching Ellie's eyes. I'm like, Elise, did you really do that and forget about Anna <laughs> Oof, yeah, that, that wasn't cool. That wasn't good. <laughs> Someone will remember all of us except Anna Victoria. Sorry, Anna Victoria. My bad, honey. But yeah, just this idea that like art lives on, you know, I I don't expect anyone will remember my poems in 2,500 years, but it's cool that Sappho had the guts to say like, no, mine, mine are going to survive. Like, I mean, and she least, was right. I, I'm going to call you out on that. I think what you need to do is you need to write them in every format you can think of. I think you need to go bury them in the sands mm. of the desert on okay, papyrus. That's go, a really good choose idea. Choose your favorite. That's and, a really good idea. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a smart plan. Because you know what? Even then people will think that like you were prolific, even if you weren't. Just trick the future. <laughs> All you need is one. All you need is one to survive. <laughs> There's actually um 
Margaret Atwood, the, the writer Margaret Atwood, did this is part of this project that a bunch of writers are doing where they write these novels that no one will see for a hundred years. And so they planted a forest and in a hundred years, the trees will be big enough to make books out of them. And so in a hundred years, they will read these novels, but like the authors will be long dead. Anyone who cared about the authors while they were alive will be long dead. It's really weird and cool. Wow. Another reason for me to want to be a vampire, honestly. Are you telling right. me that I can't experience that? Or exactly. I have to live till like 135? I could do it. I, I can, I, I think can start training now. Yeah, There's just like, there's just so much cool stuff in here about time and about like memory and the, the like longevity of art. And I think it's like really haunting and weird and interesting and beautiful that this is a fragment, right? And the only line of the poem, this is from a longer poem or song, but the line we have is someone I say will remember us another time. It's like, that's what survived. It just gives me chills. Thanks so much, Elise. And thank you for being such an amazing like resident poet for us and guiding us through Sappho's works. We just, we're so appreciative. Love you guys. Oh, we love you too. <laughs> so much love. And that's Sappho's legacy. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned at the start of the episode, the focus of today's episode is on the future of Sappho and the future of classics, papyrology, and archaeology. We'll start with Dr. Tracy Walters, an associate professor of literature and chair of the Department of Africana Studies at Stony Brook University. She told us about her work within classical Africana, an important and exciting area of classics. Classical Africana, let me define what it means. So this is a term that was coined by Michelle Ronick, which came up with this term kind of in response to Classica Americana, uh, which was a a subfield of study in the classics, thinking about how American intellectuals and artists appropriated the classics, right, neoclassicism. And so Michelle Ronick was intrigued with the tradition of African-American or African-descended people who work within the classics as well and recognize the racialization of the classics. And there's other people who write about the gendering of classics. And Professor Ronick recognized that there were kind of three main areas. She recognized that writers of African descent either were practitioners of the classics, meaning so that they taught the classics um, or they were trained, even if they didn't teach it, they were trained and they knew how to, to speak and to write in Greek or Latin. Then there were scholars who wrote about Africans in antiquity. And then there are those who, the artists, right, the creatives who are drawn to neoclassicism. And you see it in the work of W.E.B. But you know, you see it from the, the 19th century through to contemporary time. So classical Africana is a subfield of classical studies that examines the contributions of African-descended people. Tracy first got interested in classical Africana in grad school when she read Gwendolyn Brooks's poem, The Anniad, from her Pulitzer Prize winning collection, Annie Allen. The poem chronicles the life of a black woman living through World War II. The title plays off the name of Virgil's famous epic, the Aeneid. Many scholars have interpreted it as a kind of satire, but Tracy saw it differently. Um, But I've been studying classical Africana for about 20 years, and I came to this in graduate school. I came upon Gwendolyn Brooks's The Aeneid, and poetry was something I always actually ran from. I just found it was like math, a little bit too complicated to work out. It just kind of wasn't my thing. 
But for some reason, I ended up writing a dissertation and a book. But I was just so drawn to the, to the Anniad. And most people had looked at Gwendolyn Brooks's Pulitzer Prize winning collection called Annie Allen, written in 1959. But within that collection, she has the Anniad. And I kind of resisted this notion that it was a mock epic, that she was being satirical, that because she was a woman and a woman of color, that she wouldn't take it seriously, that she wouldn't commit herself to working within that form. Not a mock epic. I felt like it was undermining her craft and her artistry to suggest that she's mocking the tradition. She wasn't mocking it at all. And we know that there's a long history of people of color using the classics as a way to legitimize their, or to validate their longing within the arts and letters. And so Brooks admits that in an interview that she needed to prove that she was a legitimate poet in the same way that Wheatley has to, right? We also wanted to tell you more about Phyllis Wheatley. She was an 18th century poet. She was a slave and she also used the classics to write her poetry. So we just want to make sure everyone knows who Phyllis Wheatley is when Tracy is talking about her. One way Tracy is working to make the classics more exciting for her students is by highlighting the ways that they show up in contemporary pop culture. It would be nice for Sappho to move beyond the stuffiness of classic, uh, the classicist circle. Sorry, classicist. The classics are still viewed today as so like stuffy and white and male and old and in the minds of people, even though the classics are around them every day, right? They're engaging with them every day, but when they think about it, they think, ugh, serious, boring. But I think the work that you're doing with this podcast, I was so happy when you invited me and I was like, oh, wow, that sounds cool and interesting and fresh. So I think the kind yeah. of work you're doing and connecting with other scholars and maybe, I don't know, um, these days there are a lot of really good virtual conferences. I've done two already. Put together a conference where people can come and talk about Sappho and that kind of builds your intellectual community and gets it beyond the boring circles. One way Tracy is working to make the classics more exciting for her students is by highlighting the ways that they show up in contemporary pop culture. Everywhere I turned, it was like, oh, the classics were everywhere. They'd always been everywhere, but just kind of tuning in and being more aware of how prominent they are in the literature. And obviously Toni Morrison's Beloved and Medea is a reference that comes up and is an easy reference that people make. Uh, Tyler Perry kind of ruined that, but that's a little joke. So they're in the Disney films, are referencing them, and the superhero films as a reference. And obviously I taught a class a long, long time ago when I first graduated. I taught at the new school for a year. I taught a course on the classics and contemporary pop culture. And we looked at The Wizard of Oz and Star Wars and Jerry Springer, actually. Ovid, we used a metamorphosis and we looked at all of the incest and betrayal and all of the stories and how they related to these Jerry Springer tricks of Jerry Springer. And then thinking about the epic, right, as a foundational text. The students really took to it, the material, very well. And subsequently, over the years, I, I married contemporary literature with classical literature as well. I teach a class on uh, Spike Lee, and so we did Lysistrata, uh, Aristophanes' Lysistrata with Chirac. I'm going to work on this, actually. It just came to me last week. Moonlight. So I watched Moonlight, and I really didn't pay attention to Chiron until the other day, and then I went and I looked, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's like right there. So obviously it's still alive and well. 
You may remember Vanessa Stovall from the last episode. She's an independent scholar, a musician with an MA in classical studies from Columbia. She's also interested in making the classics more accessible. I don't know. I just think the classics have the potential to be so much more accessible than many classicists make them. I think that many of us need to interrogate our own personal inner elitism and how much we like being good at things that other folks aren't good at and being able to explain to folks pedantically about those things. Because I actually think that's like the underlying issue with many of the classics issues of accessibility. I think if folks are just willing to do certain work or stuff to make things more accessible, that makes it easy. I think Sappho is someone that like, even in fragments, I think there's a reason why she's so popular and has been written, even though she's also been censured a lot at the same time. But I think that also in the ways in which she talks about people, I think that's what I was thinking about of like how much she deals with cosmos. And I love cosmos a lot. That's where you'll hear me say cosmos, cosmetically, all these things. This uh, very ancient Greek idea that pulls together a lot. The cosmos is on the one hand, like your style, your makeup, especially female makeup, but it's also the cosmos of a city. The city has to be in good order together, but it's also the cosmos of the entire universe. (laughs) So it's like this very big, yeah, it's uh, actually, I think makeup is a very good phrase for it because it's like your makeup on the one hand, but then also the makeup of the city, the makeup of the entire cosmos. And so I love her ideas of cosmos. I think her style is fascinating. She has a lot of commentary on style in general, what gals should wear, the sorts of crowns they should put in there, even just like things to pick apart, like plectrum and not even just like, you know, some of, I know you guys have noted how queer and great (laughs) the plectrum is, but even just thinking about where the word comes from and how it relates to the different verbs around like plokos and like braiding and weaving uh, that comes together because like your plectrum is like your weaver, but also, you know, these connotations of style and hair that come out that I would even argue like filter down to contemporary words. Cause I'm like, yeah, we have our picks like for our guitars, but I'm like, pick is also the name uh, of the comb that I use for my hair too. And so I think there is so much to just sort of pick apart if you'll excuse the pun with Sappho <laughs> in that way. I have honestly, until we spoke to Vanessa, never thought about the relationship between the word cosmos and cosmetics. And that's so cool. Like I was listening to her, like my, my mouth was just open. I was just like, oh my goodness. Cause I'm a big, like micro macro person. I love like, you know, the intricate versus the expanse. And I just, I thought that was great. I love it. I also love that she's talking about making the classics less elitist because that's what we hope to do with this podcast. We hope that all of you listening feel as though this is also accessible to you and not just academics, not just papyrologists. Everyone should feel like the classics are for them. It was literally what we were setting out to do. So if we've helped make Sappho more accessible for you, we've done our job. And if you're still here, hopefully that's the case. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we really hope so. Another way Vanessa is making the classics more accessible to a general audience is through her medium channel, Corona Borealis. She writes about all kinds of cool things and often makes connections between ancient literature and pop culture. One of our absolute favorite pieces that she recently wrote puts Sappho into a conversation with female and non-binary rappers like Cardi B and Janelle Monet, and she particularly focuses on our favorite Monday Sappho song, WAP. WAP also known as Wet Ass Pussy, is a song by Cardi B 
featuring Megan the Stallion. Women just like singing about their sexuality in a really brash and open way. There's actually this great interview Megan did pretty recently with Maxine Waters where Maxine was just like, I watched WAP. And Megan's like, oh God, oh God. She's like, no, no, no. No, no, don't hide your face. She's like, because I remember the 90s when like women in rap were not allowed to say what they wanted. And so I watched it and I was like, that's audacity. It's very audacious for those who (laughs) haven't seen it and don't know um, what it is. I'm like, just go watch it. It's great. It's just female sexuality out on display. Um, And of course, whenever there's female sexuality out on display, some men in particular really can't help themselves. One of which is Ben Shapiro, who's just trash terrible he's the big for for folks who don't know he's the like dude who's always just like facts don't care about your feelings which is usually something he says particularly to trans folks a lot like when he just goes for lots of gender essentialism lots of like calls for like biological gender and other things like that but his big things is just like facts just don't care about your feelings and it's such a dumb stupid thing that I mean he's such a hypocrite with it constantly as he was uh, when he just decided to speak out against Megan and Cardi and their song. And, but then in a very bizarre way, also use the fact that his wife is a doctor <laughs> to justify a lot of his critiques. And, but at the same time, he just came across sounding like he's just doesn't know how to pleasure women. So it was pretty uh, hysterical. And so there were some really great responses to it. Some of which I, talk about in my article. One of my favorite was actually Nicolette D'Angelo, who talked about basically how like wet ass pussy is like right aligning with like the Hippocratic ideas of wetness and dryness when it comes to genders in antiquity. And I was like, this is fantastic. And she had a whole like great long thread about it, which she used citing Hippocratic doctrine, but also using the lyrics to illustrate it. It was a very familiar rant for me because it's like Shapiro always does this with like black women, but also black trans folk, but also black non-binary folk as well. And I remembered, especially when he started bringing up Baby, It's Cold Outside, because he's just like, why can we listen to WAP, but we can't listen to Baby, It's Cold Outside. And everyone's always like, who is stopping you from listening to Baby, It's Cold Outside? I realized that this was, I'd heard this before, specifically when he was tearing apart Janelle Monet's Pink when it was nominated for a Grammy. He then again was just like, why can we listen to this like highly explicit song, which is hilarious to me because Pink is all about being like sneaky gay and like sort of like saying things without saying that I'm like, WAP is way more explicit than Pink is. And he compared that one to Baby It's Cold Outside too. And so I was like, you know, let's just, hey, like, This dude is making a lot of, like, fuss over, like, stuff that he doesn't really know about, like, probably doesn't care to learn about, which in turn reminded me, again, of just, like, a lot of Sappho's reception in antiquity. (laughs) I just am sitting here laughing. I have nothing to say except (laughs) just yes. (laughs) Yes, Vanessa? so good. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it is really worth reading her whole piece about this, and we'll put a link to it in our show notes because I've already shared it a couple of times on social media. She talks about Sappho's meter in conjunction with Wop's looped trap beat, and she also told us in our interview a little bit about the comparisons between Sappho's poetry and there's some whores in this house. Every time I see that, I'm just like, there's some whores in this house, like just singing to myself. I can't, I can't read that line anymore, but here we are. This is out of control. This is so good. <laughs> So I thought there was like an interesting parallel to draw between the ways in which men receive like open female sexuality 
But then at the same time, I realized as I was writing it that like I could even go a lot deeper with some of the parallels that I was seeing, particularly around like even things like the use of hetairai, which Sappho uses very explicitly to talk about her female companions, her like girlfriends, her just sort of her crew, her cohort. But then that's a word that then by the time we get to fifth century Athens becomes very specifically about like being like a mistress to men and like male citizens specifically, especially around Athens and like Hetairai were in the symposium. There's supposed to be a lot of these ideas around like men's extracurriculars and like men's pleasure. But then, you know, a man still had his like citizen wife who he was supposed to. And like Hetairai were often like foreign women and like not supposed to be like those proper like citizen uh, household wives. And so it's, I've had a lot of conversations with folks where we've been trying to think of what's the closest we can think of a contemporary symposium, like especially like how male dominated they are. And what we could come up with were actually like strip club cultures, especially like in the South, which is a very like specific type. If folks haven't watched the show Pea Valley, definitely check it out. But then also, I think that's such an interesting nuanced thing, especially thinking about female musicians, because we always hear about female musicians in and around the symposium. Like there's all these lines of about, oh, send that flute girl out or have her come back in or like, you know, we're chasing them all down and stuff. And so I thought that was sort of an interesting parallel to draw especially considering cardi did a lot of stripping and like came up through like strip clubs and was rapping through that before she broke out big and that is a way that especially a lot of like different female rappers have come up and like some get called out for it some don't and so like i have this line in that piece where i was just like oh like you know we see this sort of like reversal of like a lot of these like ideas with the main sort of like underlying hook of WAP. There's some whores in this house. Like finally the Hatairai, they've come into like the Oikos, like the place they're not actually supposed to be because that's sort of like the citizen woman. It's juxtaposed in the song because, you know, Cardi's talking about, she's like, I don't cook. I don't clean. Let me tell you how I got this ring. Like, you know, being married to rapper Offset, who was very upset (laughs) by a lot of what she said. And she almost divorced him over it. A lot happened last year. There was a lot of rap drama (laughs) over the song. And then he turned around really quick because he was like, I guess this song does pay my bills. All right, never mind. Oh, there's some Hitairai in this Oikos. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just imagining Safford and Eliya with a trap beat. (laughs) Hitairai in this Oikos. There's Hitairai in this (laughs) Doesn't have quite the same ring. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm saying that quite correctly, but I love that. So I am obsessed with that interpretation. I also love the like the fact that Vanessa is talking about women who we will call whores, but that's just, you know, society's definition of them. Women in places where they're not supposed to be in the same way that Sappho was writing poetry in a place she was not supposed to be is setting the groundwork for women to be in places they were not expected to be before. So I all the way up to Kamala Harris in the freaking White House. We love to see I it. I love that interpretation. <laughs> the future of classics is definitely about accessibility and connections to our modern day world, but it's also about decolonizing the field in every way possible. For instance, classicist Marguerite Johnson is doing really innovative work on connections between the classics and first Australians. A lot of my research is in classical reception studies, which is basically tracing the influence of classics the ancient Greek and Roman worlds in post-antiquity. So my area is looking at colonial Australia, so the beginning of white Australia, and looking at how the classics, the knowledge of Greek and Latin and ancient history was transported into Australia and really early on in 
you know, the 18th century and later, people represented Aboriginal bodies, Indigenous Australian bodies, through a classical eye. So when they were asked to draw them, quite often they drew them like they were Greek statues. They were white and they were muscular and they were actually in positions and poses of Greek statues. And a lot of uh, the ancient attitudes were used to describe First Australians. What I've also branched into is how First Australians have appropriated the classical stories for themselves, which I think is really empowering. So I have done research on Wesley Enoch's Black Medea, which is a retelling of Euripides' play from 431 BC about the witch Medea. And she does dreadful things, absolutely dreadful things, including killing her own children. And I went to see a production of Wesley Enoch's Black Medea where he casts the whole thing in an Indigenous context and Medea is a black Australian, she's an Aboriginal woman and she brings all of the rage of the treatment of Aboriginal people for hundreds of years into that production. And so I think it's really empowering to see Aboriginal Australians taking active control of what is such a white elite tradition that usually classics was in the hands of very wealthy English and German people, white people who sent their children to school to learn Greek and Latin. So it was always regarded as an elite form of education. And that's certainly how it was when it was brought into Australia. And so now you're getting this evening out and distribution of classics into the hands of working class people, kids who don't go to private schools and Aboriginal Australians who are making their own stories from the the legends and the myths of the ancient world. And then there's the world of papyrology, which we of course had many episodes about. Just one or two or four. Scholars Catherine Blouin, Usama Gard and Rachel Mares are still hard at work on their Everyday Orientalism blog, collaborating together to decolonize the field. Our friendship is tied to, the, the starter was the seminar in papyrology, but also the project of Everyday Orientalism started as we had conversations and exchanged some views and frustrations about the field and also antiquity-related fields more generally, but patrology more specifically because this is what we had in common. So yes, yeah, so we actually owe a lot to the patrological community, which I think we are all very much invested in and grateful for their support. But at the same time, I think when you love someone, it's, you also feel it's your responsibility when something's wrong to, to just address it. So this is a bit the, the late motive be behind the, the launch of the blog. There's still a bit of resistance, but, you know, my sense is that the news are showing more and more that we cannot pretend like what we do is disconnected from today's world and that our disciplines are not colonial products. And... If we keep on pretending like this is not the case and we, if we keep on putting our head in the sand, I think in the long run, we're going to become irrelevant. This papyrology friendship is tied to papyrology and our friendship is tied to Sappho. Oh, And our podcast. So sweet. It's so beautiful. It is a, it's a I, special kind of friendship. I think. I love it so much. I also really appreciate that Katrine is talking about we can't put our heads in the sand. No. We have to talk about these things, which is why we are here talking about Sappho. Rather Absolutely. than saying, 
Lisa said, here's a podcast that doesn't exist. Let's make it. Here's what Osamagad had to say about all this. That's what I say that Eurocentrism has to do with organization of the knowledge in former colonies, which are now independent, as we say, you know. So they are not independent economically, culturally, educationally. And in the sphere of knowledge, also, we can say that they are still dependent on the, the, the heritage of this uh, era. And that's exactly what Eurocentrism is. If you look at archaeology and papyrology exactly, you will see this, that these ideas still prevail and it is repeated by almost everyone. Uh, a few of my colleagues have begun to realize this fact and began to speak out loud against all this. and. They are really doing a great job in decolonizing the curriculum, the textbooks, and most importantly, the ideas and concepts behind these uh, curriculum, textbook, and corpora and canons, which we inherited from the colonial era. I just, I loved Isama's thoughts on this whole kind of papyrology scandal and his views on Eurocentrism and the classics. And I just, I really look forward to seeing where his career goes, like talking about future of the classics. Like, I really hope that he's like the first Egyptian, like head of papyrology of, can't remember the names of the organizations, but I hope that he's, you know, up there. Cause I just think it's really important for us to be bringing more Egyptian voices into this field. And he's just such a lovely man. We want to leave you with some thoughts from Tracy and our hopes for the future of Sappho in particular. Let's kind of bring Sappho back to her glory. And she's been tainted by these kind of stories that are um, incorrect or stories that dishonor her great name. And let's kind of revitalize the memory of Sappho. So in that, heteronormative relationships weren't seen as they are today. And to be a woman who loved and to love freely, I don't think would have been read in the same way that we do today, would have been labeled in the same way that we do today. So I think that through the years, I knew who Sappho was before I started working on the classics. And because of the name Sappho of Lesbos and then you think lesbian, then it stops there, right? No one expounds upon it more than that. That Oh, Sappho was a lesbian. Okay, so what does that mean? We are bringing Sappho back to her glory. Yes, we are, We're Tracy. bringing Sappho back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so beautiful. That was like the kids' Bob version of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate Sappho and her reverence for Sappho, which we also have. We also talked to her about Black feminist thought in Sappho and what she said was really incredible. What I love about Bell Hooks and Hill Collins is their commitment to ensuring that a Black feminist epistemology is legitimate and that writing from the lived experience, right, the personal is political, is powerful. And Sappho as a character, I think that from a Black feminist standpoint, whether it's Sappho or any other figure from Greco-Roman mythology, with Sappho here in particular, because it's the Bittersweet podcast, and that's what we're doing. She enables women or scholars who work on the classical Africana to tap into their own experiences as Black women and to put forward that lived experience into the writing. 
So it doesn't have to get buried within the jargon of academia. The lived experience is what rises to the surface. In the tradition of a Sappho, thinking about reclaiming, okay, think about reclaiming my time, right? It's about, it's about the power of nomo or do Lord, right? The power of the word, transforming silence into action, refusing to be silent, refusing to accept that because you're a woman and a woman of color that you should be invisible, to draw on the work of Zanel Muhali, who's a fantastic South African visual activist who chronicles the lives of Black and trans women in South Africa who are persecuted daily because of their same loving sexual desire. In the tradition of Sappho, and from a Black feminist epistemological standpoint, these women like Sappho bring a different trajectory and they can do it courageously today, courageously and unapologetically. Ellie, I don't really think we can say anything better than that. (laughs) We truly cannot. Thank you so much, Tracy, for your beautiful words. We're going to leave you all with that. While this is the last official episode of the season, we could not leave you so soon. (laughs) We have a couple of bonus episodes for you. Elise, our amazing resident poet, had the opportunity to interview living legend Judy Gran. She is a lesbian poet and activist who was a leader in the gay liberation movement of the 1960s and 70s and continues to be a prominent voice for LGBT rights. We also have a live event, which we'll be recording on April 24th, along with some of our faves, including Vanessa, who you heard on this episode, Liv Albert from our Aphrodite episode, Kristen Russo from Buffering the Vampire Slay, and Lee Pfeffer from History is Gay. You can find all the details of that on our website, and we really hope you'll join us. In the meantime... Here's a taste of what's to come on Sweet Bitter's bonus episodes. It matters a great deal whether you're included in the origin story and how you're included if you are. Look at my hands, they are apples. My breasts are apples. My heart is an apple tree. Thanks for listening to Sweet Bitter. While this episode concludes our season, we will be doing a live season wrap up this Saturday. And no big deal, but Ellie will be here in person. I'm so excited. I am vaxxed and unwaxed and ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) That's my new phrase (laughs) for being being gay and vaccinated. (laughs) I am vaxxed and unwaxed and ready to travel. (laughs) So I'm going to New York to be there for the show, and I'm so excited. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us. It really helps, especially written reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's a big reason how we got on our new and noteworthy. So you can also support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash sweetbitter to help us for season two. This is our last episode of season one, but season two, we're, we're coming for you. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to learn all about the untold history of lady pirates and queer pirates. It's going to be so much fun. Thank and you so trans much. Pirates. And trans pirates. And binary pirates. All of the and pirates. All the pirates. <laughs> Thank you so much to our new patrons this week, Hannah and Emma. We're super grateful for your support. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SweetBitterPod or contact us on our website, SweetBitterPodcast.com. SweetBitter is an independent production by me, Ellie Brigida, Elise Knorr, and Lisa Charlotte. Our artwork is by Estella Illustrated. Music is by Lyron Rhapsody. Special thanks to Chris Mason, Tracy Walters, Vanessa Stovall, Marguerite Johnson, Katrine Bluen, and Usama God for sharing their knowledge with us today. You can read more about our guests and where to find them on our website in the About section and find the reference works in the show notes. 
big thank you to Vali who sent us in the sweetest email with a whole bunch of poems that they wrote. It warmed our heart and we're so grateful to have you as a listener. And now our final song of season one for fragment 147. Someone will remember us, I say. time.